Good morning. It is Friday, September the 16th, a slightly dull grey day here in TW11, ahead of what promises to be a very enjoyable weekend's action in the UK. Uh, the headline is one of the marquee handicaps of the year, the Air Gold Cup. Next year, Air's big flat meeting, uh, colloquially known as the, the Western meeting for, for many years, and latterly as the Air Gold Cup Festival, will have to share significant billing because York Racecourse, one of the most prominent in the UK, you could say anywhere in the world, have decided to stage a self-funded fixture on the same day. Uh, both racecourses traditionally draw a similar pool of trainers and jockeys, both of them being based in the northern half of the UK, and that's caused a lot of consternation with uh, Ayers executive and indeed the executive of Catterick, who have had a day on the, the same fixture for a number of years and are even closer to York, uh, criticising York for rather parking their tanks on their lawn. Rishi Passad is with me this morning. Mm. Uh, Rishi, do Air and Catterick have a a, a, a a reasonable grievance here, do you think? I think they do have a reasonable grievance. Um, Air in particular, because obviously it's a big day and they don't want a fixture detracting from the attention. Obviously, the logistics that you've mentioned already with regards to trainers, jockeys, horses that could potentially be involved on both uh, meetings. Obviously, it depends on the type of races that York frame. And Catrick, from a geographical point of view, again, uh, it's, what is it, 40-odd miles between the two racecourses. Uh, and when you think about the fact that there are employees, uh, racegoers, uh, and all the, the people that are involved in the competition that will be uh, potentially torn between the two. So, yes, I understand Catrick and uh, both having uh, a grievance. In York's defence, they have gone through the process, uh, seemingly, um, that they are allowed to go. So I can understand both sides, uh, certainly. I can understand York wanting to have the fixture, uh, and I can understand the racecourses being upset. I, I think what needs to happen here is a proper conversation between everyone face-to-face -to, -face to determine what the best outcome is. Yeah, I think that there's a couple of points to note first of those as, as you touched on is what kind of races are york going to run you know, i mean mm. in, in point of fact if you were if you just landed from mars and saw a map of the country you think well hang on a minute air and york are a, a long way away from one another it's about prominence yeah. on a saturday and profile on a saturday and the fact that they're in the the northern half of the uk rather than being right down the road from one another and if if york is happy to take a a, a back seat, if you like, if if York is happy to not be the premier fixture and is not running the same type of races as Air, then mm. then there's not that much of a of an issue. I wouldn't have said, provided we're sticking to our maximum of five meetings a day on Saturday, which the BHA have laid down. Well, I believe that ultimately will be the deciding factor in how upset they ought to be, because if Air uh, obviously, we know what type of races are run on Air Gold Cup Day. Um, it would be it would be uh, disappointing were York to come up with uh, races framed on their card to dip into the same pool yeah. that Air will be uh, utilising, and that and that will be a key element in in the outcome of it all. Yeah, if they were to run a, a, a very valuable six furlong sprint handicap, then you'd yes. say, well. Air would have a, a a very significant case, or if they were to run a race just like the Doonside Cup, a a big sort of staying mm. race for 
minor group or or listed horses then you you yes. realize that air air across as far as the catrick comparison then obviously geographically you understand that that's not not ideal i suppose on the other hand it, it's a bit of an apples and oranges situation as regards profile of of track and crowd and capacity etc yeah i think probably if, of the two i'd be slightly more more irritated by it if i were catrick than i would be air i think catrick you know, the the people that are involved and when i say people i don't just mean race goers i mean you know the the people who are employed on the race day etc um and again the the horses and the the competitors the human competitors they're all in a in a in a similar uh, catchment area um and i think that would be probably more of a of an issue than than air i think air as we we spoke about previously the framing of the races is important, um, but I think if I were Catterick, I'd be a little bit more irritated by the prospect of racing against York on the same day that I race on a Saturday. And of course, the other point to note is that York will argue, I'm sure, or would argue, I'm sure, if they wanted to go public on this, which I don't think that they do, that they are simply replacing a lost race day they did have a fixture on northumberland plate day which dropped off yes. the list when the uh, ruling came in about five meetings a day so they are going back up to 18 race days which they'd had for a decade before that that ruling came in so they would simply argue they are replacing a dis- displaced fixture uh, i i, I guess self-funded yeah and and it's self-funded so york is not getting any money from the levy here so it's not taking from the uh, from the overall pool, it, it, it is r- contributing. I, I suppose the other point to note is that York York had a well-known grievance when Newmarket moved the July Cup onto onto their big day, but mm. I guess they would argue that that was their biggest day. And I think this all comes to comes down to what sort of prominence does York seek on that afternoon? And I think it would only be fair for Air to still have the have the driving seat on that day. Exactly, as you point out the July Cup being moved to a Saturday, same day as the John Smith's Cup, that was a, a big clash because York had prominence and were uh, York to introduce a race or races that would uh, carry the same level of prominence and uh, and uh, prize money perhaps um, as, as, as Air would have, then that would be a, a major grievance. But I I imagine that the, the, if it's a similar fixture to the one that appears on Northumberland Plate Day or has appeared on Northumberland Plate Day, um, it won't carry anything that would be a major threat to the races that are run on a Gold Cup Day. Other major story today concerns Sean Levy, and it's a story that ties in with one that we spoke about regarding Marco Ghiani mm. last week, which is that Sean Levy uh, arrived uh, for his rides um, at Sandown Park on Wednesday, uh, the British Horse Racing Authority stepped in. It was reported in the Sun newspaper and then by the Racing Post subsequently that the jockey was understood to have failed the test for a prohibited substance. The BHA won't confirm that, but he couldn't ride in last night's racing league where he had the lead in the jockey's table and that meant he got overtaken by Safi Osborne, so it's cost him £20,000 already. Um, and the, the question is, why we don't know exactly what's happened to Sean Levy. The BHA are only saying that this is a a medical situation. He's been stood down on medical grounds when it seems to be widely understood that there is an issue of substance, no pun intended, Rishi. 
Well, yes. Uh, you know, similarly, the non-appearance last week of um, Marco Gianni, who was also uh, stood down from riding because of a suspected failed drugs test. Uh, so we have a similar situation, as, as you have said, uh, with regards to Sean Levy. It's clearly another major, major story with regards to somebody in the weighing room who has been, well, obviously, Marco Gianni has been getting better and better and on the rise Sean Levy has been established as one of the the uh, senior more uh, more talented riders in the weighing room um, and this is a, again another huge blow to him if this is indeed uh, a failed test of for a prohibitive substance we don't know exactly what it is and we'll wait to find out um the, the I think when we spoke about Marco Gianni I spoke about a, a rider that was young establishing himself Sean Levy's obviously uh, higher up the pecking order um but it, he has you know, Sean Levy has has earned himself a he's worked very hard to earn himself a place uh, at the top table in the last few years um should this prove to be uh you know positive and or as in sorry positive as in the test is positive and it all comes out that uh, he is in trouble then that would be a big blow to someone who's who's worked very hard to to get where he is yeah, I, I, if you're if you're slightly confused as to why this is all getting a bit coy, um, latterly, I can I can shed a little bit of light on this. I think it was only in 2021 that widespread saliva testing started, whereby the BHA had the capacity to instantly saliva test a jockey for prohibited substances such as cocaine, for example. And um, should that jockey instantly fail that test, they would be then stood down pending um, the confirmation of the sample. So that has only been that system of testing, that instant system of testing has only been yeah. in since 2021. But it would be unwise to assume that that's necessarily been the case here, because it could well be that during the course of a race day, a call comes in from another jurisdiction, France Indeed. or Germany or wherever, saying that there is a, a an issue, a screening issue that's come up and the BHA then take, take action accordingly. Now, if this was an alcohol positive, this would come out in a steward's report. No. And if it's not a test positive alcohol, everyone will assume what the, the, that, that it's going to be a drug-related offence. Um, but we still have to wait for confirmation of uh, what Sean Levy is currently under suspicion for. So uh, whilst we do that, there will be speculation. There will be some sort of uh, concern for I mean, obviously, no one has heard directly from Sean over the last 24 hours or so. And his agent, uh, Sashi Wrighton, said he hadn't been made aware uh, why he was unable to ride yesterday. So uh, there is there still remains a great deal of uncertainty, despite uh, the amount of uh, discussion and debate that will go on around it. Now, back to the matter at hand. Is Flightline the best horse in the world? Well, the world's best racehorse rankings, the Longines world's best racehorse rankings, say that he is. They've given him a rating of 139, the international handicappers, uh, the latest release, as plays by Eads, 135. You'll know that we use the Thoroughbred Racing Commentary Global Horse Rankings, which take a broader picture of a horse's overall achievement in the context of what it is currently able to achieve and and our rankings still have Baid at number one 
and flight line at number two. That, of course, could all change contingent on their next runs. Either way, flight line this week, it was announced to nobody's surprise because they were a racing shareholder in the horse anyway, that Lane's End Farm in central Kentucky would stand the horse upon his retirement. When is that retirement going to be? After the Breeders' Cup Classic, or is he going to have a go-round again? I've been talking to Lane's End's Bill Farish, one of the most significant figures in global bloodstock. Uh, He first of all told me the extent to which he was in awe of this horse as an equine athlete. Uh, He he just uh, doesn't cease to amaze every time he steps on the track, and and, uh, it's, it's just very exciting to have a horse with his pedigree, confirmation, and and ability to to uh to be headed here eventually upon retirement i i asked um terry finley the question i've asked costa ronas the question i've asked jane lyon the question i've asked john sadler the question is he the sort of horse that you think as time progresses and he gets stronger and bigger and more robust that can can take his racing better or will that always be him well no i think he's done that actually i mean i think it it has gotten um where he's on a more regular schedule now it's it it is uh certainly it's spread out i mean two months between races will be as <laughs> i think as closest to um from from the pacific classic to the breeders cup but but that's that's him and and he's he's never uh, he's never going to be a weekly first or every other week type racehorse i, I think he's um um you know John John's done such a good job of just settling him, and you know, we, I was a bit nervous going into the Pacific Classic of how he would handle two turns for the first time. And um, you know, he, he, every time you ask him a question, the the answer is pretty phenomenal. And so, if if all goes well in the Breeders' Cup Classic, then obviously it's the it's the great dilemma. And when the when the story came out, it wasn't a surprise, but confirmed that he would he would enter his stud career at Lanes End when his racing career was done. There was a natural assumption: well, oh well, that must mean he's retiring at the end of this year and he won't race on in twenty twenty three. Can you shed any light? Well, I really can't because it, you know I've said all along, and 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 our discussions amongst the partners all along have been, you know, we think the horse will tell us uh, that the goal has always been, you know, through the end of the year to the Breeders' Cup, and then uh, we'd assess things at that point. So it's it's really hard to say if he were to uh, do anything close to what he did in the Pacific Classic. Um, you know, it, I, I don't know where that leaves us. So we, we just have to, we have to, um, you know, we have to make that decision when the time comes. I, I tell you one thing, Bill. That I do know is it's not going to make your decision any easier. That's for sure because it's, it teases up the possibilities of something completely extraterrestrial, but also makes his value absolutely huge. Of uh, a fact that's that's not lost on you. How how. Um, how riven do you feel between your your job as a stallion master and your job as a sportsman? Well, those are you know, unfortunately, those are only two of the factors, and there's also the factor of you know, you're you're uh, you know, as every everyone in our sport feels, you know, it's the horse first, and and so that will weigh the heaviest of all in the decision if mm. if. Um, we think uh it's in the best interest of the horse to retire we'll do it if we if we think uh there's no reason not to go on you know we'll 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 look at that as well so you know there's there's a lot of great 
prizes out there now. And um, but as you pointed out, his value is could be um, so great that it's that it's uh, you know that that weighs in as well. So so uh, lots of lots of things to consider. Um, and you know he is four; he's not three. So so racing as a five year old is. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely possible given how lightly raced he's been, but uh, we'll just have to again consider that when the time comes. And you mentioned some of these huge prizes, uh, and when we were talking to Terry Finley, he was he was had in his he was sort of su- suggesting maybe even going going abroad if he did stay in training. It's, have you have you allowed your brain to even start running that far yet? You know, we really haven't. I mean, I, I think if you if you keep a horse like him in training, you know, going abroad is a, is almost a must because that, uh, that's where the, the big prizes are early in the year. There's, mm. there's not a lot of, uh, top, top racing over here and at the beginning of the year. So, um, yeah, that, that would certainly be a consideration. Well, whatever happens, I can't wait to see him at, at Keeneland for the, for the Breeders' Cup Classic you've owned and seen and been involved with and stood so many champions, so many great horses. Um, does a horse like this still, still give you a sleepless night? Does it still give you butterflies on the way to the races? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? I... Sorry, Bill. Um, yeah. Can you hear me okay now? Yes, I can. I was just saying you've been involved in so many champions and good horses, owner, uh, breeder, stood them as stallions. Does a horse like this, still give you a sleepless night en route to the the races does he still give you the butterflies absolutely uh, absolutely i i think that the unique thing that i've experienced with this horse is is a confidence level that no horse has ever given me before i i you know it's it's not the same kind of can he do it you know, can he beat these other horses? It's, it's really all about if he's, if he's on his game, which he's never, you know, he, he always has been when John's led him over. Um, you know, he, I, it, it's just, let's sit back and, and just take it in because it's so special how, how talented he is. And, you know, he just, he just covers so much ground with every stride and the, and the speed that he travels is just like nothing I've ever seen. Bill, thanks so much for talking to me. Not at all, Nick. Thank you. Uh, Bill Farish there, president of Lane's End Farm, towering figure in the bloodstock industry. Uh, even he getting quite emotional about, about Flightline. Uh, hmm. They're going to be in a, 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 a an interesting predicament, Rishi, if, if all goes to plan in the Breeders' Cup Classic as to, as to whether they can resist taking this horse to to stud, or whether they can whether they can countenance the idea of going round again, which of course would be great for all of us. But at least he's offering well, the possibility, the tantalising yes. possibility. Well, that's that. At least we we as racing fans get that there's the possibility we'll see more. And and whatever people say, the beauty about horse racing is seeing horses on the course competing and. The idea of seeing more and more of flight of flight line, or at least the flight line that we've seen so far, is exciting. It's what it's what racing fans want to see. But if you are involved with a racehorse that is as valuable as he is, then clearly it's a lot harder to to make that decision to press on. I mean, 
if there were no commercial decisions, I'd love to see Baid race on again. I'd love to see Flightline race on again. But they are both hugely valuable prospects as stallions. Um, and no one will understand what it's like to to have that decision to make and to weigh up the the, the the option of keeping a horse in training or accepting huge offers for them to go to stud unless you are one one of those people that the majority of racing fans never have the opportunity of being so uh, it, it's quite interesting for, from an outsider's point of view to see what kind of uh, what kind of uh, people uh, have to what, what kind of decisions people have to deal with at that sort of level um, I, I can only imagine and if I were in that position, I'd like to say that nobly I would press on and race them on to five and uh, it'll all be very exciting. But uh, maybe if I was in that position, I'd also take the money. Uh, just a briefly, we, we, we touched on, well, we, we more than touched on. Briefly, we, we went through the Baid situation extensively with William Haggis and, and then with Lee Mottishead yesterday. Your, your feelings on, on the champion stakes run over the arc? Personally, I would love to have seen him in the arc because uh, it would be a new challenge. And I, like, like we've said before on this very podcast today, seeing horses or seeing horses do something outside their comfort zone is something exciting. And racing fans want to see more, more from their champions. And uh, I believe going to the champion stakes is something that, you know, obviously Bayou has already proven over a mile and a quarter. Um, he's going to stay in the UK again for his final run. I, I I'm all. You know, we're going to be a lot of us are going to be able to go and see him on Champions Day, which would be great. But I'd like to see him go to a mile and a half in a race that has traditionally, over the last 40, 50 years, determined one of the best racehorse, certainly in Europe, uh, and often the best racehorse in the world. And that's where I felt he he should be crowned. Uh, the Champion Stakes is for my money, not quite at the same level as the arc. It's as simple as that. And the best racehorse that we have uh, closest to us, not Flightline, it's Baid. I'd like to see him in, in the arc doing something that he hasn't done before, a mile and a half uh, at Longchamp. That's what I would like to have seen. But I understand the decision. And I also understand how important it is for William Haggis in terms of his title challenge. Um, and I don't think that would have been a main consideration for him but it's going to work out quite nicely should Baid land that big prize. I, I will make no apology for regular visits to, to uh, Highfield Stables, the, the home of Highfield Princess and the base from which John Quinn is sending out more and more winners at a very high level. John, John is with me now. John, big runner in the Air Gold Cup tomorrow. We'll come to him in a moment. But first of all, how's the superstar? Currently, we rank her on Thoroughbred Racing Commentary number 11 in the world. She is uh, the highest rated filly in the world, the highest rated sprinting filly for a couple of decades. The only horse to have won three group ones in three different countries this, this year. And the only filly to have won three group ones in Europe. It's not a bad haul, is it? My God, um, she's yeah, first of all, she's she's fine. She's come come back from Ireland. She was back on on Monday, um, and she's absolutely fine. She's had a, a few cancers this week, uh, um, and she's moving lovely, and um, she seems fine. Uh, but as you say, she's unbelievable from where she's come from. I, I, I think one of the most unbelievable things about her for a top level horse, and I know she started from humble origins, but she's been running at a very high level now for over a year, is that she's run 30 times, John, in, in little over two years. That That is pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's, it, it is. It's, 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 um, 
it's a great testament to the filly. I mean, she's um, she's got a wonderful mind. Um, she's a very good doer. She doesn't worry. She doesn't get excited on the gallop. She doesn't blow. She, she wouldn't blow you away. She would please you, but she wouldn't blow you away. And all those things help um, to 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 keep your form, um, especially uh, at a very high level as to which she's running. You know, at the moment. She, John Fairley, your your landlord at Highfield, he he bought the dam in full to tonight of thunder. Um, I, it was just striking me that when you were beginning to produce her, you already had a daughter of Night of Thunder called Keep Busy, who was a doing just that, and b was performing to a sort of unexpectedly high level. Is, is do you think it's something that the stallion passes on that that toughness? I think so. I mean, um, Keep Busy was ad- very admirable, very very tough. I mean, I, 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 she had a she had a uh, tough campaign as a two year old, but took it very well. Great constitution, great mind, great eater, um, and her 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 eleventh run as a two year old, she won a listed race down in France. She was going all year. She started off of sixty seven. We thought she'd probably progress and win a couple of nurseries, and she you know she got to over a hundred, just beaten in the flying five. Very, very tough filly. Um, the, the sire seems to be just putting in that toughness and that that stability of mind, which is a which is a huge, massive asset in, in any racehorse. And all systems go for the Breeders' Cup Turf Sprint if if she's fine uh, until then. I mean, is there any temptation to to go to the Abbey or not? No, I mean, we, 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 I, I mean, I was thinking about it. You know, we. we we, we think about it and I speak to my son and my my team and and the owners of course but I I thought if she if she if she performed well on Sunday I would be very happy with that and came back sound which she is and I thought really 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 it's travel as you know yourself travel travel is a very tiring thing she's been all over Europe this summer and we did give her a break after I last got 50 days and she bounced back um, and won the Primoris de Geest readily. So she is a filly, can come back from a break. But I, I've actually ruled out the Abbey because I just thought, don't be greedy and just try and try and try and get her to America in good shape, you know. John, he may never reach those heights, but Mr Wagyu must have a very special place in everyone's heart at, at Highfield. He, he, he runs for the umpteenth time this season in the Air Gold Cup tomorrow. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I'll stop counting. I mean... I, he, he ran a great race at the Curra last week. I said to your son, Sean, yesterday, it was a shame you couldn't find him a race in between. <laughs> He's unbelievable. He came back from the, the Curra. Um, all the horses were back on, on, on Monday. And we just gave them very light exercise on Tuesday just to see how they moved. And Sastra Zee Shingri, who's one of my key men, and a wonderful man. Um, he rides Mr. Wagyu out. <laughs> Mr. Wagyu was trying to book him off, which is unbelievable, but he's a very tough horse. And when he's in form, he loves to run. Obviously, we don't do a lot with him at home. Uh, he loves to run. He loves air, and he's on his way up. Um, he, was, he, he, he ran very well in, in the Air Gold Cup last year. Um, drawn 15 but he's in very good form he's certainly got a chance and he's a, he's a great horse for his owners to have and he's got a constitution like a bullock john thanks so much thank you nick nice talking to you well national racehorse week is continuing and i'm very pleased to check in with our friend freedom zampaladas who runs the urban equestrian academy in leicester and there was a 
a big day for for all your students yesterday freedom just tell me a little bit about it yeah so so we um we had a day trip where we took uh 20 of our students to the godolphin headquarters dalham hall stood in newmarket um most of the young people um if not all of them had never actually been to newmarket before we have um quite a few different students we have a group of students that are our, our most advanced students but uh, we decided against taking them and we took some of our more beginner students so um, it was a great experience for them and you were the winner of the community award at the last year's godolphin stud and stable staff awards uh, and yeah. I, I know i know how important that was to you in terms of this week national racehorse week uh, yeah how significant is it as regards opening pathways that may not have been there before, you know, both sort of geographical and social? Yeah, it's, re it's really important. Um, I actually wasn't too familiar with the National Racehorse Week, but then, you know, the more experience you get in the equestrian industry, you kind of pick up on things. So I've seen uh, what it was all about and I noticed it was all over the country. There's a lot of effort that's gone into it and, by all means, there's been a lot of uh, buzz around diversity, inclusion, representation and equality in the last say, three years since Khadija Mella won the uh, Magnolia Cup. And um, so it's, it's, it's really important because you want to, you know, catch that momentum. You want to give people uh, more of an insight in terms of what the racing industry in particular is about. And by being able to engage in initiatives like National Racehorse Week and take horses into environments that, you know, are unfamiliar with racing or racehorses or take, you know, like ourselves into environments which are very familiar with racing and, uh, you know, give students an experience uh, through initiatives like the um, Godolphin Trip. Um, their everlasting memories or they could be life-changing experiences, you know what I mean? So your future jockeys, you know, that will come from diverse communities will think back to a trip such as Dallum Hall Stud and say, that's what inspired me to become a jockey. And that's, that's what you want, you know? You want to catch a fire, as Bob Marley would say. And uh, that kind of trip will certainly spark that. Freedom, thanks so much. No problem at all. Thanks for your time. Freedom's Ampelatus there. Rishi is still with me. Rishi, the Racehorse Owners Association held their AGM yesterday. Lee and I touched on why some members found the presentation of it as a webcast unsatisfactory yesterday. We're going to talk to the President, Charlie Parker, in a moment. He has uh, kept his role as President. A resolution was, was passed yesterday. Um, not by the majority perhaps that he he would have liked, nor nor his chief executive, Charlie Liverton. And at the end, there was a question read out from Sam Hoskins, a former board member, asking either Parker or Liverton whether they'd ever considered their position and considered resigning. And they both said no and, and gave the one-word answer. But, but what does this tell us? Uh, Sam asking that question just, uh, well, just reiterates that there are clearly issues that at, at the ROA. Um, you know, I, I've... I've had a look through the report of, of what happened yesterday. Um, you know, the first thing that struck 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 you is the fact that they, you know, only three percent of the members voted on the on the resolutions. Uh, that in itself suggests that there are you know huge issues with with the ROA in terms of 
getting the right decisions made. And there are issues around governance. And there are issues that have been dealt with, obviously, in the discussions yesterday. But has it satisfied the members? I'm not entirely certain that that's happened. Well, if there are issues at the Racehorse Owners Association, um, what are they and how can they be addressed? I'm hoping we can get the answers from the president, Charlie Parker, who's also the chair of the Thoroughbred Group, formerly known as the the Horseman's Group. So uh, somebody with a, a significant seat within racing's corridors of, of power. Uh, Charlie, let's let's deal with this question from Sam Hoskins, first of all, whether you or your chief executive have, ever, have ever, had ever considered your positions. And you said no. I, I'll rephrase it for him. Um, why do you think that you're the best man for the job what makes what makes you the best person to be the the president of the roa and and somebody who is who is acting in the best interest of ownership as a whole um well it's a good question i have uh, obviously got a lot of commercial experience going back in the past uh, business finance um i also and um, have been in and around the roa for many years and understand uh, British racing and beginning to understand more about the politics. Um, I understand how British racing functions in terms of its finance. Um, and I, you know, I, I took the job in the first place, was elected by the board in the first place um, on that on that basis, the experience and skill set and um, the ability, hopefully, to make a difference. And I think that's that's what we've been doing. We've we've managed to get the, um, the BHA uh, governance review up and running and hopefully over the line and we've and we've also been instrumental in in the um the launch of the strategic discussions um you know two massively significant steps forward for british racing and and uh, me and and charlie liverton uh, as as a as an aide de comp has have really played a major role in that so um you know i think from that basis you know we we've made significant progress from where we were previously um, and as an organization, we've made significant changes, um, moved office, um, launched new businesses, uh, ridden through COVID, um, managed to bolster the balance sheet during that period, which not many other companies or associations have done, um, taken a, 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 a significant investment in the tote, which is hopefully going to be at the heart of British racing in the future, um, added to the team. Um and and change the dynamic and governance of the organization itself so uh, to be honest i can't see where that sentiment's coming from other than personal uh, resentment okay the the resolution to keep you as president was was carried but 36% of people voted against that which is a not insignificant amount of people why do you think 36% of of those people wanted you out well it, it wasn't a, a resolution to vote me as president. The president is voted by the board um, from the board members, and it's then ratified as a re annual at the annual general meeting as a resolution, along with the accounts and other sort of company business. Um, traditionally, that vote is a is a rubber stamp. Um, it, it attracts very small numbers. Um, less than sort of three percent of the total membership in terms and those are entitled to vote so an organized campaign to vote against doesn't need that many people to vote <clears throat> during that <clears throat> excuse me organized organized campaign to 
to you know to achieve some sort of result like that um i think i think uh we've all been through enough votes to know that 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 um it can it can get close in those circumstances but the resolutions will pass and we move on okay so you're not you're are you worried that only three percent of members voted is that a sign of disenfranchisement of membership well actually the there are more 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 members voted at this annual general meeting for on the resolutions than I think probably ever before. It is a it is an is an issue. I mean, our membership join primarily for the benefit package that they receive, um, and and the um, the various discounts, insurance, magazine, whatever it is that they get. They're not necessarily joining an association that has these these types of rules and regulations and governance around it so i'm not sure it can be um seen as you know you know as as a as a weakness or a strength i i think it's just an anomaly of of the association and the structure that that has been there for 78 years okay let's try and assess then in its 79th year what the racehorse owners association actually is now what 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 do you how do you see the role of the organization well, I, I, the ROA has always had sort of two two different uh, faces, really. The the first one, or not necessarily in order, but is its role in the industry. Um, we are a shareholder in British racing um, through the ROA, not through the thoroughbred group. So we 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 form a significant stakeholder presence there, and we have to champion owners' um, positions and other participants' positions because I mean they obviously work for us. Um, and 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 play a part in what the future holds for British racing. Um, the other side, the other face, if you like, is what the association can do for its members, and and we need to increase the level of benefits that 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 come with membership of the ROA. We need to grow the business, um, which we're doing in terms of the VAT solutions, and there are other um, uh, initiatives that we're going to launch. Um, and grow the membership base. We, we we managed to get the membership base to an all-time high just prior to COVID. Um, and um, obviously, along with every other aspect of life, we were affected. Um, and we need to come back from that. There were other changes to uh, GDPR rules, et cetera, which also affected, affected us, which was is boring, but it did impact us. And we are rectifying that. And we are now back on an upward curve. Um, so those are the... T- two faces of the ROA I would say the next 12 months and maybe even the next few weeks the the industry bit is is absolutely crucial um there are there there, there is no plan for British racing at the moment um there, there was uh be, the beginnings of one through the project enable report that was done before uh COVID hit and just launched before COVID hit but since then they're all eyes have been on survival there's been nothing about the future and of course when you look to the future you see some pretty difficult seas ahead um and our strategy needs to get both through the short term but most importantly look at the mid and long term issues of the sport um, okay okay where could where 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 is your strategy to coin a, a phrase that that your most vociferous critic would level at you our strategy our strategy has to be to grow the grow the revenues into the sport and to ensure that there is a defined contribution and distribution of those revenues to the participant 
I mean, it's it, that it, one one leads to the other. We can't be part of a sport and help grow a sport and not be part of what that produces in terms of um, prize money, in terms of remuneration to trainers, jockeys, stable staff. So if we're going to do it and we can only do it with us as a collective, then we also need, need to participate in, in, in the profits, if you like, of that strategy. How does sorry when you say you need to participate in the profits of that strategy? What do you mean? Well, we okay. What we can't do is we can't just come up with a plan that doubles the the betting revenues into the sport and have no um, contractual or yeah contractual see through into that money that then finds its way into the pockets of the participants. So we can't be expected to. Um, make changes, maybe do things that not all of our participants will like and actually have no guarantee that that will impact prize money and how that drip feeds through into the rest of the participants. Okay, what about this uh, strategic review that is set to be undertaken by the the tripartite structure? You, you presumably have a key seat at that table, don't you? Isn't, isn't that supposed to be happening now, sometime in the mid, mid-September? That's what we heard from from three weeks ago when I interviewed Richard Wayman this was it wasn't it Sep- mid-September yeah yeah it's coming up um and uh it's it's basically next week and um uh there's been a lot of work done a huge amount of work done by Alison at the BHA and, and her team though to get ready for it and a, a lot of pre-interviews etc and a lot of thoughts and ideas have been uh discussed um and uh, it's going to be extremely interesting. I think we, 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 we've got to look at a, a sort of medium to long term uh, set of ideas during that discussion. Um, this isn't about fixtures next year or races next year, albeit that that might come out of it. This is about how, how do we engage with the next generation of race goers, the next generation of um, uh, punters, the next generation of of, of of people watching the TV who are going to um, then maybe go on into into ownership. How do we how do we engage with the next generation of stable staff jockeys? We, you know, you look around the room. You know, we're we're all getting old, and um, I look at my kids. They're twenty one and twenty, or twenty one and twenty two. You know, how how do we engage them? That's a different generation. They don't watch the TV. They don't watch. They don't read newspapers. They don't buy newspapers um you know they 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 have a whole different way of interacting with the world and that that is the generation that is going to have to sustain british racing in the future and and on all sorts of different social media platforms on all sorts of different technologies and we we need to grasp that um and it, it's something that in other sports they will talk about but then they leave it at 18 and then they revisit it at 6 40 50 60 years old golf instance so now that for me is a major major um part plank of of how we how we go forward for five to ten years is is how do we make this sport attractive on many levels to all Mm. the people that interact with it yeah that that's that's great and and it's it's a a noble aspiration that so many racing stakeholders have sought to sought to to achieve over over the years on on a more prosaic basis how are how is the ROA going to make lives of their members now better on a day-to-day basis on the race course? 
and make their experience as a racehorse owner a more rewarding one and not and not just to their pocket yeah no well it's a it's it's a it's a fundamental aspect of the roa there was a question yesterday at the agm uh stephen astaire who's done incredible service to the roa over the years he's stepping down but still continuing to be involved on a number of projects he was he was instrumental in setting up the race day experience the accreditation program and you know i'm old enough to know what you used to get when you went to race courses as an owner or as a as son of an owner um to compare to what you get today and then how those improvements can be taken forward and and as we mentioned yesterday we started restarted the accreditation scheme for all race courses i think we've done 40 out of the 59 and most of those have improved on their benchmark score from 2019 and this is a bad experience there's a, there's a number of areas whether it's food drink accommodation parking whatever it is um, but there's other initiatives um, such as how do we accommodate syndicates now not all race courses have the space but can we have a dedicated room can we have a set number of um set number of badges for example and, and and how can we be flexible and you know those those are discussions that we have both with race course groups and with the rca and with our badge scheme itself so how can our members as owners but not necessarily with a runner at that race meeting can can take advantage of those facilities so that that is what the roa if you like that's his day-to-day business and i think it's there, there's some huge um, uh, wins, if you like, in the pipeline on there. Because um, race courses now, with pressure on spectators, owners become even more important. And, you know, it's it's a symbiotic relationship. We go, we spend more money, we enjoy ourselves, we bring our guests and... Mm. You know they they need to they need to recognise that and they are so I think it's do, I think that it's the bread and butter. Do do you feel that you 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 are now waking up to the the potential of syndicates and it's not just a question of making sure they get badges it's a question of as you point out the potential of having large amount of syndicate members on a racecourse. You know yeah, it's, think, it's, well, it's, it's think, a virtuous circle it's a benefit to everyone isn't it you know you get you yeah, get 150, 200, 250 people there what does it matter what they pay to get in? No and I think I I think race courses recognize that i mean I, there's plenty of stories about you know well-run syndicates who um you know are managing to get you know large number of tickets for you know, obviously not the festival meetings but for meetings where they've got runners and even quite high profile meetings um and it's about relationships and it's about um race courses recognizing that those people are going to come and they're going to spend money so there's a lot of good work there you know there's the odd course um and there's the frustrations that that then bubble over and i think it's one of those areas in life where you get you get you know one or two issues become headline news whereas the you know the, the vast majority work smoothly um and and have a good experience um but we've got to we've got to make progress we've got to do better and i i think everybody around the table recognizes that some courses they just don't have the space um and whatever you do if you've got a room 12 by 8 there's only so many people we can fit in but on the whole i think good progress can be made and then on the back of that the data that can be produced of the people arriving the people enjoying what they're spending you know that's another critical factor of how we grow the sport 
Charlie Parker there, the president of the Racehorse Owners Association, with some interesting thoughts. Now it's time to check in with a new cohort of Godolphin Flying Starters. Uh, The most recent group began just a few weeks ago. They've got a podcast out today. And uh, I'm very pleased to check in with Sarah Kelly, who is at the moment uh, not too far away from her native Kildare at Kildangan Stud. Sarah. We have, so we've just started the course in September, in August. Um, So we have started here in Kildangan Stud. We're five weeks into the course and we're going to be based here until the end of October, until we go over to Newmarket um, for just over eight weeks. And we go back. Oh, we're back in America then in January. Excellent. Now it's it's a, a brand new intake of, of Godolphin Flying Start trainees, which means more brand new editions of the Godolphin Flying Start podcast. You've got an edition out today. Tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. So this uh, year kicks off. We kick off with season two of Leading to Success, our uh, Flying Star podcast. We're basically just trying to give the listener an insight into our experience as first year trainees on the course. So we're joined, myself and David, um, we are joined by Ben and Orla, two of our fellow trainees, and they're just going to give a little bit of a talk about what we, we've experienced so far and just an insight into our lives here in Kildangan Stud. We're also talking to Martin Larkin, who is the management assistant on Godolphin Flying Start. He works an awful lot with us, um, sorts out an awful lot of our logistics on the course, and he will be talking about technology within the industry and how he finds it so important for the future success of the industry and Flying Start. Okay, looking forward to it. And as far as you're concerned, you've had lots of experience at some of the biggest studs in in Ireland. You've also worked for for Jessica Harrington, as you say. You've you've spent some time in Australia as well. What's the what's the goal? What's the ambition? Do you think? Oh, the ambition is it definitely being on the course. That's what's so great about it. It changes every day. Um, you know, we're exposed to so many different facets of the industry. And it's it's great to see that there's so many different lines of, of work and career goals that you can work towards within working with horses. Most definitely, I myself, I find I've, I have a lot of experience in stud management in, in that area of the industry. And I definitely enjoy working with horses and people um you know it's all down to the love of the horse and i really enjoy watching a horse from full following their career all the way onto the racetrack and more importantly i really enjoy working with people um i definitely have a keen interest in team development and i enjoy working closely with people um so i definitely i'm looking forward to exploring that interest more as i as i go on throughout the two years of the course Thanks to Sarah and thanks to my many guests today on this Bumper Friday edition. I should just add, if you were with us on the podcast earlier in the week, you'll have heard Mick Mariscotti talking about his uh, lovely collection of horses that he bought relatively inexpensively from Tattersall's, including Coltrane. Well, uh, wouldn't you believe it? The latest Tattersall's £20,000 book one bonus has gone the way of, guess who? Mick and Janice Mariscotti, uh, Glenn Finnan. Um, has won uh, his maiden and uh, has picked up £20,000. And that's now £7,790,000 worth of bonuses that have been given out. Uh, unprecedented, uh, you might say. Well done to uh, the vendors, Gildorn Stud, and to the owners, Mick and Janice Mariscotti. Uh, Rishi is still with me and has some advice for you for today and for the Air Gold Cup, I think. Well, uh, today, I like uh, Prince of... Pillow, P.O., I think we'll go with that. 
who ran in the Flying Childers last week. I know it's a fairly quick turnaround, but um, I don't think we saw the best of him. And he looked pretty good in his two runs before that. So I'll give him another chance um, today at Air. And in the Air Gold Cup tomorrow, I'm going to go with last year's winner, Nick uh, Bielsa, who is only a pound higher than when winning the race. 12 months ago, I thought it was a pretty good run behind Sense of Duty uh, at Newcastle. Two starts back, ignored the run at Chester. He was slowly away, never got into it. Um, and we haven't seen him since. So fresh, not far off last year's mark. Bielsa for me in the Air Gold Cup. Richie, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, Charlotte will be back this evening with the Saturday edition from 9 o'clock. I'll be back on Monday. That was Friday, September the 16th. Bye-bye. <laughs>